0: So, the Synod on Synodality is having meetings, bringing people together, and in that vein, here we are, the first joint Crisis in One Peter Five podcast. We're streaming to the whole world through multiple channels. I don't even know how you can get here, but hopefully you'll get here eventually. So, anyway, so, we're going to talking about the Synod on Synodality. I'm Eric Sammons, the editor Chief of Crisis Magazine. And he is Timothy Flanders, the inner chief of 1 Peter 5. Uh, so since the Synodality on synodal Synodality is affecting all Catholics, we thought it would be a good thing to get together, talk about it, and more importantly, talk about some practical ways that Catholics can respond to what's going on in Rome. And I'm very excited what Tim's going to be sharing with us later about some things he's been doing in that vein. Uh, before we get started, just you know, like and subscribe to anywhere you find this. If it's on 1 Peter 5 subscribe there. If it's at crisis magazine, subscribe there, then go and subscribe at the other place. Uh Just, you know, wherever it might be like, and subscribe. And also you can, uh uh what else can you do? Oh yeah. Follow us on social media at one Peter five. I think our most major places and at crisis mag. And so that's basically uh I think that's all the stuff. So, Timothy's coming from, from, to us from a hotel room, which we'll get to later, his secret location. Uh, but until then, we'll, we'll just talk about, let's talk about sin. So first of all, let me just say, if you want to follow what's going on at the synod, and I completely understand if you don't. But if you do, I would highly recommend Diane Montagna and Ed, Edward Penton. They're the two great reporters. They're both on, on X Twitter, whatever you call it. Follow them to kind of see what's going on. We're going to mention a few things they've said. So, Diane Montagna and Edward Penton are the two top journalists in Rome. Timothy and I were very uh, privileged to hang out with them a little bit a couple weekends ago at the Catholic Identity Conference. Uh, they're great, and they're doing great work. So how, how, how are you feeling about the Synod, Timothy?
1: Well, uh, the, in, the, in the words of uh, Cardinal Basungu, Synodality. I'm going to bring him
0: up later. Okay. What, 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 Synodality
1: what? is a, this is a quote from him. Synodality is a new way for the church to walk together hand in hand towards the shore where the Lord awaits us. So I'm happy to take your hand, Eric, as That's we right. walk hand in hand to the shore together yes. as we stream everywhere. Uh, this is our accompanying of one another and all that good stuff. Yes. And uh, uh, but I do want to recommend uh, also follow 1 Peter 5. We have uh, Vincenzo oh, Randazzo, right. our, our Romanitas correspondent in Rome, and this is going to give you more than, it's a different take on journalism because this is commentary from, uh, Vincenzo is an expert on Roman culture, and he, he leads traditional Catholic pilgrimages in Rome, and he speaks from uh, a position of being able to interpret Roman culture, traditional Roman culture, centuries old, the, what we're trying to preserve, and like for example, today he has a he has a, a post about the traditional Roman porters who are guardians of the church's dress code in Rome. I I didn't even know this existed, um, but he's looking at the synod and everything in at the synod. Uh, so he's posting every day on on our Twitter at One Peter Five, um, so you can take a look at that as well. In addition to the aforementioned uh, veteran Vaticanistas, Montagna and Penton
0: now, okay, I'm glad you missed that i I'm, I was remiss to forget about that good work that he's doing, but are you telling me some people are not welcome at uh at parishes if they don't have the right dress code? Is that what you're suggesting? Yeah, yes
1: unfortunately um some some things are not welcome at the church all as as the Lord himself says in fact the the Lord Jesus Christ himself set the standard for being welcomed. Uh, and he when he told the parable of the wedding feast he said uh, many are called few are chosen because there was somebody at the wedding feast who didn't have a wedding garment and so he was thrown out while there, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth so Jesus Christ himself threw out some people from the wedding feast and, and he, of course he threw out the money chain you know he he took a scourge to these people threw them out um, they were not welcome in his father's house because they had made his father's house into a den of thieves So um, as the Synod talks, not only about welcoming so-called LGBT people, which, as we'll discuss, is is just an insult to all the people, Catholics out there who are struggling with same-sex attraction. It's an insult to them and an attack on them. It's an act of hatred towards them. Um, But it's not only trying to welcome so-called LGBT people. It's also trying to welcome people who don't feel welcomed in their polygamous marriages. Uh, This is a new issue, I think, that's been brought up in the Instrumentum Laboris. You know, those people who are promiscuous and sleeping around and have concubines and stuff, they just don't feel welcomed. They're a little miffed by the fact that they can't have four plus wives.
0: You know, I'm glad you brought up that passage, though, from the gospel. It was the reading from last week, right, in the the Old Mass, I believe, about the wedding feast. Because if you read that, that parable makes no sense in today's paradigm. Yes. It just makes no sense. The idea that first of all, he had this wedding. Some people don't come and then he throws some people, the King throws people out where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then when finally you do get people there, one guy's just not dressed the right way and you throw him out. And, and, and like you said, it ends with many are called fewer chosen. And I think that's very interesting because that is an antithetical to modernism, but, but this whole, all are welcome idea that there are, there are guidelines. There are things. I mean, I was reading a, a homily by St. Gregory the Great on that passage, and he was talking about how one of one of the uh, interpretations is that all that enter, they they to the wedding feast, they receive baptism, they have faith. However, the one the garment is love. In other words, they live out their faith, and they're actually practicing. They, they love the Lord, and they're practicing their faith, and so. What happens to the one who does not live out their faith? They're thrown out. And so I think that's that's Catholicism. That's our Lord's teaching. But that's not at all what we're hearing at the Synod and from the people who, who were invited to the Synod. I also think that's kind of funny because, you know, he goes out in the streets and invites anybody. But at the Synod, we only invite certain select people who already agree with us. <laughs> Uh, so, yeah, I, I think that I, that's a good passage. I think it was providential that that one came up in, in the old calendar, at least last Sunday, that reading. Now, before we get into this in a, a little bit more details. It, the, a bomb dropped right before the Synod, and that was the dubia that we found out that the, that the cardinal some more some cardinals submitted dubia. They were answered within a day with a long answer, which tells me that was prepared ahead of time. Like they had their standard answer, but then of course the answer made no sense. And so then the Cardinals ask again, but this time in a way that could be just answered yes or no, and then no answer was given. And so what did you think about the the, the fact that the, these Cardinals, first of all, made this public right before the Synod and generally the the questions and the answers that were in the name of the Pope, but really it's probably Cardinal Fernandez who who answered them.
1: Yes. um, I mean, it's, this is an exciting time to be a Catholic um, and there are good bishops out there who are fighting for the faith and we can thank God that uh, we're blessed to be, to live in such a time as this, where uh, we're dealing with these immense controversies that our great grandchildren or great, great, great grandchildren will ask us what was going on. What did we do? What happened when those, when the second Dubia brothers came out, what did you do? What happened? And all this. So it's just an exciting time to be a Catholic right now. And um, I, I mean, I was very excited to find out about that. I thought the most um, it was even, I think it was better than the first dubia in the sense that the very first dubium is about modernism. And that's, this is sort of the crux of everything else is the very first one. When they talk about the changing of divine revelation and basically so-called doctrinal development, which is Orthodox versus the modernist version of evolution of dogma. And I think that Pope Francis's answer s- sort of showed his hand a little bit in the, what he talked about and how he was, he was saying that scripture itself needs to be uh, conditioned and new, the new Testament is against women. He said things like that. And I, I really thought that that really revealed uh, what was going on. This is something that Pope Francis has pushed in his, we just ran um, a, an article a couple weeks ago called Pope Francis Sexual Revolutionary, and it was talking about how this is how they're pushing women's ordination, they're, they're pushing for more and more, they start with the, the false presupposition that uh, a, a woman's or man's dignity is based on their power. So if a woman does not have power in the liturgy, it's an offense to her dignity, which is already a falsehood, already a falsehood based on dignity. And then they try to push females more and more into more and more liturgical roles. They have to be female altar boys. Now they have to be lectors. They have to be extraordinary ministers. They have to be more and more things, parish council, everything, or else it's an offense to their dignity. But if you start with a presupposition, which seems to be in baked into what Pope Francis says, if you start that with that presupposition, I think that there's no basis to really deny a woman ordination to the priesthood because it's all about power it's all about you have to have if you have equal dignity you must have equal power that's the way that the whole world works. the way the presuppositions of feminism and this seems to be the concern of pope francis so i think it's very important um we need to study these dubia uh, i think catholics need to study these things read up on their catechisms these are all practical things we can get into
0: You know, it's interesting because I think you probably were the same, and I had a whole podcast about this, but I felt like, you know, we've had years of just getting beat down by our church leaders, by our bishops, by even the Pope. And I felt like there was, for me at least personally, there was like a week there where it was like boom, 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 where we had bishops just coming out strong. So we saw Bishop Strickland, you and I did, at the Catholic Identity Conference. He was just amazing, just coming out strong. The Bishop Athanasius Schneider releases Credo, the Catechism, that is just phenomenal. And I, I think I'm going to try and make it my duty to read at least one paragraph on every single podcast at this point. I mean, it's just, it's, it's so good. And then the dubia uh, are, are released by these card- these faithful Cardinals. And I do think that as Catholics, we have to not forget that I, I, it's, it's, it's a well-known phenomenon that for example, if you're online and you get, a bunch of people like your 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 post. You get compliments, but you get one person who rails on it. That's the thing you remember. Just psychologically. That's what we do. We remember that negative comment. And I think that's what happens with us as Catholics. We remember and keep in mind the Supiches, the Gregory's, the Father Martin's, even the Pope Francis's, the things they do. And but we can't forget that there are men who are staying. There are men in, in, in church leadership who are standing up for the faith, and we need to support them with our prayers, our fastings, uh, financial support if necessary in the right situation, and publicly supporting them. And there are women who are, who are doing it, and they're doing it mostly these, these wonderful, beautiful nuns who are praying, who are sacrificing their lives. And, and we'll talk about a few of them here later because you met, you, you, you were with some of them <laughs> recently. So I just think that this is something we have to keep in mind. This is not Pollyannish. I'm not saying, oh, everything's fine. Let's put our head in the sand and act like everything's fine. No, I'm just saying, let's have a complete picture of the beauty of the defense of the faith that's happening. Like you said, I mean, like Protestant Reformation times, I'm sure many Catholics, all they could see was the fact that there were hundreds of thousands, millions of people leaving the church. And that is, that was the tragedy yet. Don't forget. They're saying nations of Loyola, St. Philip Neri, St. Teresa of Avila, you know, all these other, th- these great saints that are rising up in defense. So uh, I think you're right. That's what we'll be telling our grandkids one day about is like, yes, I remember when Bishop Strickland stood up and I remember when, you know, Cardinal Burke and, and Cardinal Seurat and Cardinal Zinn. I mean, that guy, Cardinal Zinn, I mean, he's, he's the saint of our times. I mean, yeah. he's, he's the moral authority. He has the greatest moral authority. I think of anybody in the church today.
1: Yes. I'm um, I, a confessor and, of the faith. And I, I want to yeah. also just mention the, um. but oh, we've got Nova Nova watch watch watching the chat. Welcome. Welcome <laughs> Nova Soto watch. Um, restore tradition.com is also a bunch of female uh, mothers, intel- female intellectuals, women who also released a statement ahead. Uh, this was released at the CIC conference with Diana but uh, they also released a doctrinal statement, which was very powerful and very good. Um, and it's signed by it's 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 a, 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 a uh, basically a women's only uh, excluded men. I, I feel excluded. I don't feel well. Yeah. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> but I, I'm this is exciting for me because um, this is in particular because this is how the feminists work. They, they want to find women out there who feel excluded. And in all fairness, women are sometimes not treated well, and that's not Catholic right off, right off the bat. Um, but then it's great to have these women who are speaking out as Catholic women, as mothers, and they're saying, "No, I don't want that. I'm not asking for feminism. I'm against feminism." It's very much like there's a there's a German Catholic group in Germany called Maria 1.0, because there there's a feminist group called Maria 2.0. if It's saying we have to up uh, we have to update the Virgin Mary, which is an insane attack on Our Lady, of course, but then there's a, a faithful German Catholic group of women who are fighting for true Mary and true true um, Catholic femininity. And it's the same same thing with this group um, in America. It's RestoreTradition.com. So any women out there who want to join that and put their name on that statement, it's very, very good statement. And it, it's, it says... It basically says, bishops, do you believe in, and then it just quotes all these anathemas and all these quotations from authoritative magisterial sources. And then at the end it says, if you don't believe in that, we will not follow you. And so it's just a very powerful, awesome statement. So all the ladies out there, go to restore.restoretradition.com to add your name to that statement as well.
0: That's great. That's great to know about.
1: I, well, I want to
0: talk a, now a little bit about the synod. I, I want to give a little bit of context. I've written about this. I think you've written about this. But a, there's there's an Orthodox dele- Eastern Orthodox delegate at the Synod who basically kind of called it out. I mean, he said, this is not synodality as we understand it in the East. And this is something completely different than what they're doing. And I think the Eastern, obviously, the Eastern idea has, has an idea of uh, synodality. Some of it's a little bit off from a Catholic perspective. Uh, I think we can say that um, because they don't include, obviously, the Pope in there. But I know you know a lot about this. Obviously, can you just explain for people? I think what this synod is and what a synod actually is. <laughs> what I yes. mean like, what the the synod of synodality. What actually, what is it in reality? And then what is a synod supposed to be?
1: Yeah, well, I, I I talked this in my article on one Peter five that's called Greek Bishop Exposes Neo Modernist Synodality, and this was actually a Greek Catholic bishop, mm-hmm. um, and he and you you mentioned in your in your talk uh, Greek yeah. Catholic Bishop Manuel Nin, and he basically said the same thing that this Eastern Orthodox Bishop said, because there is and this is what the neo modernists have been doing at and after Vatican II they take they cherry pick things from the East they cherry pick little stuff from the East. In order to promote their modernism. An example of this was Cardinal Casper's um trying he's trying to um promote divorce and remarriage according to the Eastern Orthodox model, which is actually heretical what they do. That's not traditional. But there is a traditional synodality, there is a traditional collegiality in the East and the West, uh, which are basically these local synods which were dealing with local problems where the bishops, the bishops were facing problems that went beyond their own diocese. And so they all got together in a particular region to address a particular problem which affected their whole region. And this happened on local local levels, like, for example, the the, the Council of Orange. The Council of Orange is, is a famous council in the West. It was a local council which dealt with plagiarism, And so it, it sent out some decrees and canons against Pelagianism and also dealing with particular problems and things that were going on. But what this was, was just bishops exercising their Episcopal authority over a general region, And then obviously there were bigger synods too as well. The biggest synod of course is an ecumenical synod. And so these synods were bishops exercising their power over their jurisdiction. Uh, the, the modern synodality model, And I argue this, this happened at Vatican I and Vatican II, And then the worst of it is happening right now with synodality where there was, there was a breakdown of the, the lay and clerical powers, first of all, in, in that the traditional role of the lay people in an ecumenical synod was to get the bishops together and provide protection via their army um, and to help the bishops just do their job. It was not the lay people to, Uh, judge the doctrine but there was a participant there was a traditional participation of the laity in the ecumenical council in sponsoring it putting it together all this good stuff Um, but at Vatican I and especially at Vatican II there began to be um, the loss of this lay involvement and an increase of media pressure media pressure so it ended up becoming a big mob a big sort of mob pressure of the media pressuring certain things and um, trying to push through certain things and, and interpret certain things about the council, um, which was really following more of the model, not the model of the old synodality, the, the old, these old synods from the ancient times and even the Council of Trent, but rather the modern um, the modern models of liberalism, from the American Revolution to the French Revolution to communist revolutions, where there's this huge press media push that's trying to push all these vague slogans and create this sensation that's very emotional and it's trying to get various political uh, goals accomplished. Um, Vatican I was really the first council where there was this huge media push and the Vatican II was even worse uh, because the the invention of the newspaper really got started in the 19th century. Um, but it's essentially just trying to create this zeitgeist. What, this is what I said in my article a couple days ago. It's trying to stir up a zeitgeist. So all these elites are stirring up a zeitgeist by stirring up a mob with a bunch of vague emotional solo- uh, slogans. And then calling that the Holy Spirit. And we've already seen this back in the Instrumentum Laborious. They're talking about, oh, we need to listen to the Holy Spirit. Listen to the Holy Spirit. Well, this is all just a rigging. They They know, I mean... This is not anything new with Pope Francis. They were do- they've were they been doing this with liberalism, where they you have a bunch of elites who stir up a mob and they say, liberty or fraternity, whatever new slogan they want to use, or you know, communists have their own slogans. They whip up the mob. They kill a bunch of people. They say that this is the new uh, spirit of the world or spirit of the time or whatever. Thomas Paine said one thing. Karl Marx said thing. it's the same thing. It's the zeitgeist. It's the new thing. And so there's somehow divine power with it. And it's the new thing. It's the Holy Spirit. Now they're calling it the Holy Spirit. So it's the same model. It's nothing new. People know how to do it. We've been doing it for five yeah. generations now or so. So, And
0: I, I think it's interesting yeah. because Diane actually called them up on this because I'll bring this up. This is a an exchange she had with um, Ruffini, who is the press sec. I think he's the press secretary. Oh, the prefect of the Vatican secretary for communications. And so she asks. A fundamental question about the Synod. Repeatedly, Synod officials, including yourself, have talked about the Holy Spirit as a protagonist of the Synod, just like what you were saying. Over and over again, we hear about the Holy Spirit. Traditionally, well, not just traditionally, the Catholic Church discerns the presence of the Holy Spirit by determining if something is in accord with divine revelation, the unanimous consensus of the Fathers, and apostolic tradition. How is this assembly discerning whether something comes from the Holy Spirit or from another spirit? And I tell you, this this is the question right here. I feel like this is the $64,000 question that puts it all in perspective. Agreed. And then his his answer, Rufini's answer is very enlightening. I can respond by, recite, by citing the creed, which you know, I believe in the Holy Spirit. For the rest is the people of God on a journey that is meeting to pray and converse together. In history, as in prior history, moments happen when the people of God gather, pray, God with them, and the Holy Spirit acts. And then Diane asks, how do you know it's the Holy Spirit? And then he's quickly taken away. What I think is interesting, we see the two different religions that, in essence, are existing here. Diane's expressing Catholicism, that you know the Holy Spirit is present because it's in accord with divine revelation, the unanimous consensus of the Fathers, and apostolic tradition. This is how we know because the Holy Spirit cannot uh, contradict itself. If the Holy Spirit uh, himself, if the Holy Spirit taught something in divine revelation— and taught something at a council in the fourth century, or whatever, or in the second century, whenever, then they're going to teach it again. Still, it won't contradict it. But then you look at what Rufini says, and he basically says the Holy Spirit is just the people of God on a journey that is meaning to pray and converse together in history. <laughs> I mean, that's just that's just nonsense. I mean, it's just as mumbo jumbo. I mean, I, I would. For a second there, I was going to say something about like being like a Protestant thing, but that's insulting to the Protestants. No, I know good Protestants who know who believe the Holy Spirit's much more real and powerful than this guy's saying. And so I just feel like that really brought it very clearly to the fore that the Holy Spirit is a cover. It's a cover for what they already want to do. They want to have same sex wedding uh, union blessings or whatever. They want to have communion for divorce and remarriage get a bunch of people together that they've pre-selected around round tables and say, that's what we want. And now it's the Holy spirit. But like you said, it was pre-selected ahead of time. That's not how the Holy spirit works. Uh, and and we know this from a a very long time, uh, you know, from, from 2000 years of tradition.
1: Yeah. This, this, this comment is so revealing. In other words, they don't know how to discern between the Holy spirit and some other spirit, which is obviously a euphemism for the fallen spirits. Right. What other spirits are there? Right. Spirit of man, spirit of the times. Those are all, uh, you know, these these demonic things. The zeitgeist is what it is. The zeit. If anyone's not familiar with that term, zeitgeist it's just the spirit of the times. Whatever the times are saying, whatever people are into, that's the zeitgeist. And today, people are into including inclusion of every single form of person, which is just an American form of Marxism. Uh, which they pulled out of the civil rights movement uh, to create this, this whole movement that we have with BLM and everything. Now these people feel excluded if they're, we've added polygamy. It's, it's it's insane that we've even gone that far. Polygamous people now feel excluded. Um, Yeah. They can't, they can't determine what is the Holy spirit and what is not. Uh, That is, that's all that tells you all you need to know about this, this synod.
0: Yeah. And then you've already referenced this for uh, before, but like another thing that was said, uh, it's not very well written. I don't have that big enough for people to read probably, but Edward Penton asked Cardinal, um, how do you pronounce his name? Bus- uh, uh I don't know. Yeah. He's from Congo. He's African. And so Edward was basically asking in light of the homo- how much the homosexual issue is a taboo in Africa. What is your opinion on the emphasis being placed on LGBT issues during the synod? Was he, and is he concerned that these discussions may lead to the acceptance of same-sex blessings within the church? And if that happens, will the African bishops accept this as the will of God? And the answer is, again, it's just, I, I call it like ecclesial bot answers. It, it doesn't say anything and you don't even know what it means. He says, well, first of all, we're here for a synod on synodality. And I wouldn't want to stray from the t- theme of synodality. Synodality is a new way for the church to walk together hand in hand towards the shore where the Lord awaits. Oh my gosh. It's so bad. Um, this is what synodality is all about. It's almost like he's getting paid. Like you get $100 every time you say the word synodality. This is what synodality is all about. How can we walk together to the shore where the Lord awaits us? And in walking together, how can we face the questions that confront us? And if one of the issues we face concerns the question of LGBT and all that, homosexuality, well, but when the time comes, the Lord himself through collective discernment will tell us the direction to follow and i just think there's something very revealing about that as well because he's basically saying that there is no guide there is no nothing behind it's all in it's all made up right now like whatever we you know we're just going to walk in hand in hand we'll end up somewhere we don't know where and so when you don't know where we've come from i mean it's like there's no like there's no guardrails there's no which is what tradition really is it's these guardrails that keep you on the path to heaven. It does. So you don't fall off the cliff, but these guys are holding hands, you know, falling down the cliff and they're just like, well, that's where the Holy spirit, that's synodality. And I just think it's, I just can't believe. And actually I know I was going to say, I can't believe anybody buys this, but I realized people don't because that's why so many people leave the church. That's why people don't take this seriously. Uh, what they're doing in one sense, like we know it's all just a, a sham and it really is sad, but, and I, I don't, the reason I'm emphasizing this, this idea of what synodality is and Holy Spirit is because I do think Catholics need to be very clear that that's who's there right now. And that's, that's how they're talking. They don't have, they're not like, okay, how is the Holy Spirit leading us to understand what the church has always taught in a modern context? You can do that. No, it's a matter of we're not even going to care what came before us. We're just inventing it all as we go along.
1: Yes. Uh, yeah, go ahead. No, go ahead. Um, oh, I, I mean, th- yeah, this is <laughs> it's like uh, try to to keep your kids away from negative peer pressure. It's like they, they want to just stir up the peer pressure and create what the people have got are walking hand in hand towards who knows what. I don't know. Yeah.
0: Now, I want to talk about something specific from the Senate, and that's what's well, already the infamous table 28. And so just for people who don't know how the Senate is organized, they basically meet in this big hall, which is, oh, I, I try to ignore, I try to like block out what that hall looks like. I just don't understand what the designers,
1: but anyway, it's, I think it's called the Paul, the six hall. Oh uh, yes. The, the ugly, uh, it's, that's it, <laughs> one of the ugliest things, ugliest monstrosities. Like, uh, yeah, <laughs> it's just, I, I don't, yeah. Uh, how, how that thing
0: got through and was, I assume it wasn't, it was built relatively recently. I mean, the past like 60 years, but I don't even know, to be honest. I don't know the history there. um, but, but essentially, so what happens is they're all, there's 360 some delegates and they meet at 35 tables and they're round tables and each table gets a, and they're grouped together a lot of times by language, because obviously you're going to have a hard time if they can't speak the same language. And they group around. Certain subjects like people say ahead of time, here's what I want to talk about. Obviously, Father James Martin put on his form, all things gay, and so that's how they then determine okay, where would you put everybody? So they're not releasing who is at what table, though, but there's pictures. I mean, I think that's the whole secrecy thing is another thing that is just wild. But they they they've released pictures so you can kind of see a little bit who's at what table. Like at one point, they showed the Pope's table. Uh, and this woman, uh, nun in her pants suit was, um, was there, but then table 28, and I think it was, um, Diane or, or maybe Edward who, who, first noticed this was that it was the table that was on, uh, LGBTQ issues. And of course, father James Martin was in it. And as well as, uh, Oh, I know her name Cynthia. I can't remember her last name.
1: Yeah. Cynthia. Yeah. I'll look that up.
0: Yeah, she is the she's like the director of um, catechesis or something for th- was literally the the most liberal progressive parish in America, St. Joan of Arc Catholic Community
1: in Minnesota somewhere. St. Joan of Arc crushed, crushed this heresy. Uh, it's so yeah, sad how she's I abused, know. used and abused.
0: Yeah, yeah, I know exactly. Um, so, so the Cynthia okay, Bailey Mans, okay, Cynthia Bailey Mans, okay, and so they're at the same table and they're talking about LGBTQ issues, and I just thought it's interesting that. Who is at that table who's representing because we're all about dialogue, representing different points of view. Who is at that table representing faithful Catholics who have same who who have same sex attraction and they're but they're living chaste lives? Who's there from courage? Is there is there a representative there? I mean, I think we know what the answer is.
1: Yeah, it was uh so this was from Edward Pent, one of his latest um where he he they obtained the the secret document that uh revealed who was on whose table and his penton source did say that he the source is in the source's opinion the assembly as a whole seemed to be more evenly balanced about same-sex issues as to those who wanted more accommodation and those who were opposed but that's already problematic in the first place to even have this evenly balanced issue um and so J- james martin uh I've said this before, um, I years ago, before I even became involved in any sort of public Catholic stuff. Anyways, people were telling me, oh, James Martin is this heretic. So I thought, well, who is this guy? Well, I thought at least I should read his book before I make a judgment about it. So I, I went and read Building a Bridge. I read the whole thing cover to cover. And that's when I was convinced that he is a total snake. And the reason is because he uses emotional manipulation to convince the, the pulling on Christian compassion. Uh, and this is the worst form of manipulation. He's manipulating the reader, uh, to promote all these wicked things without technically, technically crossing the line. And and it's, but it's going so close to the line that it's like, what is What is a Catholic to do with a near occasion of sin? You flee from a near occasion. You don't go towards a near occasion of sin. So, Uh, But what one of his one of his lies in that book is that the church has oppressed gay people and made them feel excluded and hurt and whatnot. Uh, Are there people out there with same sex attraction who have been wronged and insulted and uh, sinned against by other Catholics? Of course, there has been. Yes. But there's an organization that's worked for decades and decades with helping people who have same sex attraction live chaste and Catholic lives. And it's called Courage International. And this has a very high success rate they use. It's very similar to Alcoholics Anonymous with the 12 steps. And this is an organization. It's an apostolate of Catholics helping people and their loved ones who struggle with this particular form of temptation. And this is where James Martin just slanders the whole church because he ignores what the church is actually doing to help people like this. Um, and it's a great injustice to there's a great blog post that i shared uh when i wrote on the errors of james martin in his book where there's it's written by one of these catholics who's involved in courage and he and and it's called you're hurting me james martin and, and james martin is just is hating these people who are pious catholics who are living chaste lives and they're overcoming their temptations and they're and they're living happy and fulfilled lives according in accordance with the with the teachings of the church and this is the the really the action of, of Christ really loving you know the woman caught in adultery go and sin no more Christ loves the sinner and hates the sin but uh Sim, James Martin loves the sin and loves the sinner too and that that's what he promotes he doesn't promote that Christian gospel so but you he yeah, doesn't
0: love the sinner
1: yeah he <laughs> doesn't love them either <laughs>
0: right because he, if he loves the sin then automatically you really hate the sinner because you because it's so destructive. I mean that's the thing is you've ever talked to people anybody's ever talked to, to people who struggle with same sex attraction who have lived perhaps lives of uh, embracing it in the past, and then they they have a conversion to Christ and they 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 live chaste lives through the grace of Jesus Christ. You know how painful and how destructive that lifestyle is, physically and people don't want to talk about that. But yes, physically. Uh, spiritually mentally psychologically it because it's so contrary it's such a disordered nature it's such a disordered way of living and so contrary to the way God wants us to live it's very destructive and so when they they are freed from that it i think a lot of times they end up becoming saints because i feel like it's the grace is just so powerful to free them from that well father james martin is saying no you're living this destructive lifestyle you need to keep living in that because by doing that, you're justifying other people who want to keep living that lifestyle. Um, and, and so I just feel like that it, like calling him a snake is the right word because he loves to to proclaim that he's never contrary, he never contradicted church teaching. And I I mean, you could debate that. He's been very close to the line, but he does that on he does that on purpose because what he's doing is he's undermining it so much and he's letting people continue to live in it. And so the the very fact, and this is something I think we forget about because we get so caught up in these debates of the time that the pope and and, and the bishops and everybody they set the synod agenda and they talk about this stuff. But the problem is is that we forget the big picture which is there should be no discussion at any synod about the possibility of blessing homosexual unions, about the idea of accepting Uh, people for communion who are living in this type of lifestyle, things of that nature that just shouldn't any discussion of this should just simply be, how can we encourage courage and and apostolates like that to actually help these people to bring them out of their sin, to allow them to live in in freedom in Jesus Christ. And that's just, so, I mean, just the agenda gets set by frankly, the enemies of, of Christ and then by saying that agenda, that's what we have to talk about. But we have to also remember the whole agenda is is uh very very um I was gonna say the weasel word problematic, but really it's demonic in a lot of ways.
1: Mm-hmm. And I, I love what you said in your talk, Eric, at the CIC conference. And how you 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 define synodality is is, is something you said something like it's it's like this parliamentary process where we put vice and virtue on the same level. And then in order for us to put it to a popular vote. Right. And that's that's what this is. And what I what I loved about what you emphasized is that this idea of welcoming people who are in sin is an insult to God because God can bring us out of our sin. Uh, God can, God has, I used to be a Protestant. I used to be outside the Ark of salvation. You used to be a Protestant too. We're both, we've both been brought by the grace of God out of our own heresies into the Ark of salvation. And we, we have overcome these mortal sins, but not because we're great, not because we're great. We're saints. God knows, but because God is great and God's grace can bring the heart, most hardened sinner to a saintly life, and that's the amazing thing of God's grace that He can really do that, and He can make saints out of sinners. And that's what's so what it ultimately what I what I love what you said is like this is an insult to God right. to say oh we just need to welcome these people. No, God can change these people's hearts. We can change change my heart, change yeah. their hearts. It can it, the gospel can transform uh, all sinners into saints. Right, we're not called
0: to welcome people. We're called to transform people. I mean, that's essentially what it comes down to. We're called to tra- we, meaning the, the church, the Holy Spirit, obviously is the one that does the transforming. But we bring them uh, through the grace of Christ to the church. It's not just about welcoming; it's about transforming. And I that's why I've come to believe that a synodality. I think it's a heresy. Now I realize I'm using this a little bit generically because what is synodality? I mean, it's so it's so weaselly; it's hard to say. But what I mean by that is synodality, though, by basically saying error and truth and vice and virtue are on the same plane and saying that essentially people cannot change out of sinful lifestyles and we just need to welcome them that that is heretical in my mind because it is saying that god does not have the power either, either it says well it says a couple things it says god does not have the power to bring them out of their lifestyle but it also makes god a liar Because God himself said in Jesus Christ, he said, be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. And so obviously we we can only do that through the grace of God, but he wouldn't have commanded it if it wasn't something that we we shouldn't strive for. And that's the difference is it's not saying that I'm perfect and they're not. What it's saying is I believe through the grace of Christ, I can become perfect. And if I don't become perfect, it's because of my resistance to it. Mm. What they're saying is, no, it's not possible for the person in a homosexual lifestyle, or the and remarried, it's not possible for them to be perfect. It just can't happen. So we just have to accept them where they are, and that—that's where I think we've we've gone to heretical territory because we're, we're undermining
1: uh, God's power and, and God's grace. And th- these there these 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 errors are heresies. I agree with you, and they, because they come under the anathemas of Trent, because Trent was addressing Lutheran heresies which said those very things. If you go read Exurge Domine, the original condemnation of Martin Luther, and then look at um, uh, Trent's dogmatic anathemas on um, g- grace and works, faith and salvation, justification. One of the anathemas is, is something like, uh, if anyone says that the commandments of God cannot be uh, done by the grace of God, let him be anathema. Right. Because God God commands us, and then he gives us the grace to do it. And one of one of the one of the errors of Martin Luther in Exurge Domine, one of his errors is the phrase in every just work, the righteous man sins. And so Martin Luther's idea was that everything we're doing is sinful all the time. Even if you're doing a good work, it's sinful because you have some secret vice of pride. And so you're just always sinning. So you can't possibly please God unless God just puts a stamp on, puts snow on the dung. As he said, he just stamps a smiley face on you, even though you're a total sinner. And that was the Lutheran error and heresy that is condemned. And so we have this same Lutheran idea at play here is that we need to just let these they can't. This is an ideal monogamous heterosexual marriage is an ideal. We can't quite achieve that ideal. Just let the people have, you know, the best they can do, you know. And I can't just
0: so. And one of the things I brought up, and is a segue to the the segment we're going to go into now, which is the more, uh, the the response and uh, uh, practical ways that we can live as Catholics in this age of synodality. Um, But one of the things I mentioned in my talk, too, was the fact that our calling is to be witnesses to the fact that it is possible. Like the reason we can call out Father James Martin is because we know people who have, through a lot of times through courage, have change their lives for the better and and now do live chaste lives in conformity with God's law and they and they know their life is so much more beautiful, so much more happy and and, and hopeful and all that. If nobody did that, then we would start to think, well, maybe Martin is right, maybe it can't be done. And I think that's true for all these situations in which you're saying, well, it just can't be done. We're just gonna accept them where they are and say you can just receive communion. If we're living holy lives of marriages that that are we're faithful to our spouses, uh, if we're in a situation where we, you know, a divorce. I mean, I met a number of people um, at the conference and, and other places who are in a divorce situation, like their spouse left them and they don't want to be. You know, and they're just like, "No, I'm going to remain faithful to the vows I gave. I'm not just going to because what's everybody telling them? Everybody's telling, them, "Oh, you need to now find another." go move on with your life, find another spouse. They're like, no, I may. And they're examples to us to say, okay, it's a lie to say you can't do this because people are doing it through the grace of Christ. And so I think I want to, so I think that's the first thing is the best response to this, this synodality, this heresy of synodality is to prove it wrong through the grace of God by living Holy lives, living lives that that really are in conformity. I mean, that's our first calling. But I, I I want now to talk a little bit. I want to segue because I really feel like this this hits home at the synod right now. You are in a undisclosed secret location. We don't want anybody to know because you know the FBI or the the Pope's people might come after you. But um, but no, you've been going on a pilgrimage this week, uh, as kind of a response in many ways to uh, the synod. So where have you been uh,
1: so far? Well, give us some of the highlights. Uh, well, I, I this is this is a pilgrimage, really. To it's a, I mean, it's a Marian pilgrimage to Sister Wilhelmina, is what it is. This week we have uh, hu- two huge Marian anniversaries. One is the Maternity of Mary. Uh, October 11, which is the Council of Ephesus, when Our Lady was proclaimed Theotokos, which is a triumph over Artemis Ephesia. You can go watch my ca- podcast on 1 Peter 5 about that, or read my book. Um, and then tomorrow we have the um, the Miracle of the Sun, with Fatima, obviously. And Sister Wilhelmina was a very Marian saint. She belonged to an order, the Sisters of Divine Providence, originally, that has special Marian, Montfortian, consecration to Mary. They were a bunch of black women in the early 1820s who were committing themselves to holy slavery to the blessed virgin mary it's a a very radical awesome thing that they did because you know these are african-american women you know their their family members may maybe many of them were enslaved at the time and they're they're entering into this holy slavery of mary which is of course what saint louis de montfort discusses in his marian consecration so sister wilhelmina is a very Marian saint. And so we, uh, I first went to St. Louis, which is where she grew up. I went to some of the places there, including her childhood home and, um, and so, and promoting her biography and she, she's just a, such a beautiful American saint. Um, I, I think I, um, we have an, un, we have an uncanonized incorrupt saint in Michigan, but he's not, he's not even canonized, but, um, I don't know if there's any incorrupt saints like her in America. I, I could be wrong for anybody in the chat can correct me, but. In and by the way, America- just so people know
0: we can call her a saint. We're allowed to, even though she's not canonized. Obviously we accept the church's decision on this one day, but it's very much in Catholic tradition for, in fact, this is how saints got created is that the people said, this person is a saint. And then eventually, the church recognized that through a process that we accept. But I just wanted for people who are listening, like, "Oh, is she canonized? No, she's not canonized, but we can call her a saint because we we believe that she is." And then, and it's through our venerate our, the cultists that that forms around her, which I am a full fledged member of, <laughs> that that then she uh, you know would eventually be canonized. So sorry to interrupt. So oh yeah, yeah. I
1: mean the the modern canonization that we have was a result of instituting a a process in response to the protestants so after the council of trent that's when they had what they have now in terms of these modern canonization processes, where we go through a a quasi-scientific investigation which all that's great that's all that's a good thing um but before that saints just kind of bubbled up and organically and people just started believing people were saints and and people were um you know, people were working miracles after death, and everyone believed in it, and this sort of thing happened. And then, the popes just sort of recognized that was already what was already there. Um, Nowadays, sometimes we even have some saints like Paul the Six, for example, where there's really nobody who's venerating Paul the Six. No, nope, I mean, maybe there there was somewhere, I'm I'm sure, but it was kind of a canonization that was created by the Vatican. Um, I'm I'm not saying not saying either way whether or that's that that's legitimate i know that's debatable but there was no cultist for him no. right anyways the point is sister wilhelmina has a huge cult i mean people just flocked immediately thousands and thousands of people came to see her incorrupt relics um and i've i've eric i've never seen an incorrupt relic in person until now i, I mean an incorrupt body I mean, it's a whole body now some incorrupt relics are just sort of pristine forever some incorrupts are sort of just slowly decay, like slower than normal. Obviously, um, so her 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 face looks totally totally alive. Uh, her whole face, her hands are a little bit crumpled, um, but her whole body and 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 her her the crown of flowers is totally intact. Her habit is totally intact. Uh, it's just all miraculously intact, and it's absolutely unspeakably glorious and amazing everyone should try to make a pilgrimage to see sister wilhelmina i mean it's just absolutely we've we've already have in in the americas we have the miraculous tilma of our lady of Guadalupe. you can see in mexico city to this day that's been preserved for 500 years but also seeing this body of this nun uh preserved it's really amazing so all of this is it's a pilgrimage of hope because um you know, I, I've really it's already she's already um, affected me quite a bit, just like reading her biography, going through her biography um, and just encountering her incorrupt relics. It's really just makes me uh, there's this passage in I think it's Proverbs 31. I was talking about the, the the noble woman, how she laughs at the days to come and how there's we we sort of we look forward and we're in this evil time, this, this terrible time, the church, all this crisis and whatever. But. Sister Wilhelmina really teaches me to laugh at the days to come because God is in control. He's the one who will have the victory. He'll have the last laugh. You know, all these evil evil men are trying to uh, have their little uh you know, machinations of evil, but God is going to have the last laugh. And that's also uh, Psalm 2. He he who sits in heaven laughs them to scorn. God laughs them to scorn. And, and Sister Wilhelmina was very much a very affable saint. She was very uh, joyful to the end of her life, cracking jokes, being very humorous, and writing all these po- these poems that are beautifully, uh, read some of them in the podcast yesterday. So anyways, the, this whole trip has been uh, trying to promote hope in a, in a dark time. And, I, and Sister Wilhelmina, um, more than anyone else right now, I think provides that hope in just such a unique and powerful way.
0: And I think it might seem a little bit like what's the connection here to some people? Like, "Okay, you're talking about the Synod, all the bad stuff going on there. And then we're talking about Sister Wilhelmina. But I I really, truly believe this is how God responds to these these situations. It's not like we all want to fight. Against it. I'm not saying that's not, I mean, like we were just saying, it's great that people like Cardinal Zinn and Cardinal Burke and Bishop Snyder and Bishop Strickland are fighting because that is their job. Their job is to defend the faith. You and I are doing that on some level because just publicly speaking about these things and others are doing that. So I'm not saying you don't do that. But what I'm saying though is, is that ultimately though, God always does an end around, it seems like, from our ways. And so you have these powerful men in the church and powerful men in the world too, because You know, as well, we have these powerful men who they plan all this out. Like we have this whole synod planned out to try to undermine church teaching. We do all this stuff. And we're going to try to shut down the Latin mass. I mean, we do that as well. All this stuff. And all of a sudden, we just find out there's this lady, this nun, who was a happy woman. And she was an African-America who faced discrimination without getting bitter in a in a country that has had a history of, of problems in an area, she lived through the changes in the liturgy in the 60s and 70s and wanted to remain faithful to the Latin Mass. Eventually, was able to continue to attend the Latin Mass. Lives this whole and all of a sudden she dies in basic obscurity. I think the only thing written about her death was at one Peter five, uh, her funeral. Uh, you guys had an article, of course, and then all of a sudden. Just out of the blue, we find out her body is incorrupt. And I do feel, I, I like, your, I like the, the the imagery of God laughing. Kind of like he's just kind of, I mean, we don't take the nation, whatever, you know, the, the, uh, make him too human. But the point is, I do think there's a certain chuckle here of like, okay, guys, you're doing all your stuff to try. to You think you're all powerful and stuff. I'm just going to kind of send a sign. And I really do believe it was a sign to faithful Catholics like God is still here. He's still active. He's, he knows what's going on. He's aware of it. He's not, he hasn't turned away from it and he's raising up saints. And that's, and I feel like Sister Wilhelmina, for example, it would not shock me at all if she's interceding for somebody like a Bishop Strickland and for Bishops and I something like that, that she's interceding for them. And I wouldn't be surprised if they're, if, you know, especially Bishop Strickland being from the same country, Cardinal Burke and others. And Cardinal Burke, of course, has a connection to St. Louis. And, and so I, I just feel like there's, this is how God does it. It's not the way we want to do it. We want to do our political machinations and get it all figured out. But I think so. I, I feel like this is a great you going there is a good reminder to us and, and people. Um, I think it's on your Facebook and on your Twitter, right? The one Peter five, all the stuff you've been doing.
1: Yeah, most of the stuff is on Twitter and it's on also on Instagram, too. I haven't been able to get no Instagram on us.
0: Yeah, I I know. I know.
1: Woe is me. More social media. But uh, yes, you're young and unlike the gray beard here. So. (laughs) (laughs) So I
0: I think that's what we need to do is 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 remember that. um, And so
1: what else? What else did you did you go on, on on your pilgrimage? Yeah. So we went to St. Louis and then the next day we went to, I, I'm saying we, but it was just me. I, the royal uh, <laughs> I, I went to, uh, Gower and I did meet up with two Texans who wanted Nicholas Cavazos, who's contributed to one Peter five. That's what I had the podcast with him yesterday. And then today I went to St. Mary's, Kansas, another, a very much another, um, uh, Great thing of hope really is this Immaculata Church, which is one of the largest, probably the largest new church out there in the Americas, maybe in the world. Uh, It's it's this awesome uh, hope one day cathedral, perhaps. Um, But it's this huge church that was uh, just funded by all these pious Catholics putting their money together and, and making this awesome church. In this town of St. Mary's, which is a very strongly Catholic town since since the 1800s. And it it, um, the the SSPX came in and and got this this Jesuit old Jesuit campus that they had uh, created at the time to evangelize the Potawatomi Indians. And they had a seminary, but they the SSPX got a hold of it in 1978. And the Catholic culture of the town has just continued to increase. It was already very Catholic at the time. And then it just continued. More Catholics came to St. Mary's. And then they built this awesome church. It, it's just a, a true a marvel of modern Christendom that that Catholics are just coming together and they're building Christendom. And what I love about it too is that it really harkens back to the olden days with all these cathedrals of Christendom that are famous today. It's Notre Dame of Paris, Notre Dame of there's many Notre Dames, but church, all these different um cathedrals that are famous across christendom it was because these different cities were competing with one another for the greater glory of god and saint mary's kansas shows this great competition they set the standard so your challenge is to build a bigger aw- more awesome church with- gives greater glory to god in your town and your city go um yeah. so uh tomorrow i'm going to peoria illinois i'm going to the fulton sheen shrine for the first time but the person who's in peoria is Royce Hood he is the director of the docudrama about Sister Wilhelmina oh okay. so he's he's contracted with the Benedictines of Mary that's the that's the um, Benedictine order or Abbey in Gower where Sister Melina is he's the director so you can go to uh I've got the link on my on my Twitter uh but you can go donate they're raising money's money to to make the docudrama And it's going to be great. It's called incorruptible the life of sister Wilhelmina. So I'll be meeting up with Royce Hood. Uh, I'll do a podcast with him and we'll talk more business in terms of um, just what we can do to promote incorruptible. And so that's really exciting that they're going to make a movie, which is just going to increase more and more devotion to sister Wilhelmina. It's already she's already her cultist has already been become huge. Just by word of mouth, and the secular media even got a hold of it. It was crazy, like you know, New York Times, CNN was like, "What's this? This is weird." <laughs> so, yeah, it's an I, exciting
0: it, time. It is, and I, that's the thing is we have to remember it is an exciting time. Like we we focus on the bad stuff, but like there's pockets, and we you know I would want to call it pockets of resistance because it is resistance. Um, but I look at it like the, the famous quote, like they have the buildings, but we have the faith, and I think it's like that here, where yes, they they control. A lot of the, the 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 church, not all of it, um, a lot of it, you know, there's good people there, a lot of good priests and things like that, but they control a lot of the power. But we have the faith and we see it being lived out like by Sister Wilhelmina uh, at St. Mary's at different places, at, at various parishes and, and different places around the world. And that really is how the resistance eventually wins. I mean, it's like you look at a a resistance movement in a war situation, which, you know, we are in a spiritual battle here. The, the, the reason you form a resistance movement and not a is because you don't have the power to form an army against their army. Because normally what you do is somebody has an army with a, with a hundred thousand men. If you have a hundred thousand men or more men, you would form another army and you would try to defeat them. But if you only got a couple thousand, well you know you have no chance to go head on. You cannot defeat them. So what you do is you form these a resistance movement, which means you do like you basically build up these cells of resistance. Now, you know, the, the, I don't want to take the war analogy too too exact, but the point is, is that by forming these resistance cells, that's how you undermine the more powerful army. And so I think that's exactly what we do here by, by just living the faith, you know, trying to live holy lives. By encouraging people to live the faith, by looking to examples like Sister Wilhelmina, by looking to examples of of various you know parishes that are doing the right thing, bishops are doing the right thing, we form this resistance that eventually does win out, and that's what happens is it wears down because the powerful people eventually th- th- they fall apart on their lives and things like that. So I, I feel like that's that's what that's the hope we have. We know if we live um, live these lives, and and so I think. This is uh, important, I think, also. If you notice, what we're talking about, though, is we're staying, you know, there's the big temptation is to uh, leave the church, leave the institutional church, uh, break away in some way, left or right, however it is. But these things are all happening inside. And that, I've I really have been meditating on, you know, the parable of the wheat and the chaff, that. You know, within within the church, there's going to be good and evil, and our Lord said this is going to happen. He told us this on purpose to, to warn us, so we wouldn't get too discouraged. I was reading, was it Gregory? I think it was Gregory the Great. Yeah, he was re- re- writing about this when he was talking about the 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 parable of the, of the wedding, that this is just the reality that we have this, and so the the solution you, you don't resist it by just by leaving town, by 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 going out. Instead, you're, you're resisting by staying within. And knowing that, yes, there's the wheat and the chaff, and sometimes we're the chaff. And we want to be the wheat. <laughs> and so the point, though, is that we stay within the institutional church, and we, we we fight in the ways we can fight. And people get discouraged. But honestly, if you're raising your kids Catholic, if you're being holy, you know, trying striving for holiness, living in your parish, all these things, then you're you're forming the resistance. Um, I, I, I start. I guess my Protestant days. I start preaching a little bit here, but you know. Yeah, yeah.
1: I mean, when you think about it, I mean, our Lord founded the church. And what I talk about in my book is that he sent out the apostles who had an oral tradition. They didn't have a New Testament. They had the New Testament as the sacrament. This is the New Testament in my body and blood. That's what they had. They had the mass. They gave the mass. They gave the gospel. And they planted the mustard seed in these Catholic families. And this is the mustard seed that our Lord planted in the face of two huge professional empires and armies, the Roman Empire and the Persian Empire. Which conquered over these things, and we see the we see the same mustard seed playing out in our time too. Because we have in the night in 1970, it's hard it's hard to believe, but in the church, in the world, it was a little bit better because they had less abortion on the books and that sort of thing, less pornography, less whatever. But in the church, it was worse than it is now. People destroying things, detro- taking hammers to statuary that immigrants had scraped to fund things like that, this sort of thing uh and especially with the trads regarding the latin mass it was much worse than it is today the latin mass was forced underground people were going to hotels and everything and finally and they were called heretics and schismatics for decades and decades and finally pope benedict says no they're not schismatics it was always approved in principle etc cetera, etc cetera. we've just had this organic organic growth that is coming from the grace of the holy spirit and it's just coming from these catholic families who are so much stronger than the best plan of all these machinations of the enemies of Christ. They can't plan anything that's more, that's stronger than the Catholic family passing down the faith. They just can't defeat it because that was the plan at the very beginning when Christ founded the church was through these families and through these bishops and these lone bishops. And so don't, don't worry. God is in control. This is the way that God gets the g- glory. He gets the glory because he takes away the army and all the people and and whittles them down to Gideon's little band. And then he wins the war. That's how he does it. And so that's sister Wilhelmina is it's just the perfect way that God was just laughing about the enemies of Christ. Absolutely.
0: Okay. I want to wrap it up here, but I do one last thing I want to bring up as a response. And that is in connection also with the whole Eucharistic revival going in America. Your lapel pin is uh, the the Crusade for Euchar- Eucharistic Reparation. I have my lapel pin on my other jacket. This is my Blessed Carl Prayer League pin. Oh,
1: that's good, too. Yeah, we that's, that's, that's our good. other pin, the Geppets Liga, of course. That's yeah, right. to the let me up. Liga
0: and join the Crusade of Eucharistic That's Christ. right. It's Blessed Carl's feast day is coming up here pretty soon. But oh, yes. the Crusade for Eucharistic Reparation uh, just real quick, let, I, I think the 1 Peter 5 people probably know, but I'm not sure if the crisis uh, audience knows. Give your quick elevator pitch of what it is and why we all should join it.
1: Yes. So, the Eucharistic Reparation Crusade was called by Bishop Schneider, and it is a, a, a means of giving God back the glory that was taken from him in the Blessed Sacrament. And so, we make reparation for all the crimes. And this is from Fatima. The angel of Fatima taught the prayer uh, that we pray in the Eucharistic Crusade, which is God forgive God forgive people who abuse the Eucharist and and bring them to a greater Eucharistic reverence. And so we're offering up reparation for our own sins and those of, of our, our neighbors who may be sinning against the Eucharist in order to increase this devotion of the Eucharist. And so it, it, you go to 1peter5.com slash crusade. So this is a lay sodality of prayer reparation. And the basic requirements are very minimal, which allows you to add this to your your devotional confraternity list of whatever you're into. Um, but it also has, we also have big plans for this. We really have a, a lot that we're planning both short and long term for this whole crusade. And this is, in, in my import, In my opinion, this is Eucharistic, I mean, Eucharistic devotion, Eucharistic devotion is not like any other devotion, because it's devotion to Jesus Christ directly in his sacramental presence on this earth and so eucharistic devotion as vatican II says very very rightly it is the source and summit of our faith that's what the eucharist is the source and summit that's how uh the church gets her very life that's how we should we should get our whole life from the eucharist so um go to onepeter5.com slash crusade for more information
0: Yes. I, I, very much encourage people to do that. Um, I think it's, 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 we all know there, in fact, just real quick story, then we'll, then we'll wrap it up as I saw on, there was a, a big thing on Catholic Twitter because there was pictures of a major Eucharistic, um, procession going on in New York city, I guess it was this past weekend and a, a, a bishop was leading it. Uh, father, uh, Matthew Schmidt, I think his name is, he's, he's well known. I just, I'm blanking a little bit on his last name. Um, and, but there's thousands of Catholics who are in this and people are sharing it, which they should saying how beautiful this is. Um, because there's a lot of unrest, obviously in the world with going and there's worries about big cities. And so like here's in the biggest city, they're, they're, they're doing this and it was beautiful. And I saw some progressive boomer Catholic who was like his first thought, his first thing he said was like, Oh, this is like, you know, Oh yeah. A bunch of old men walking around, uh, swinging incense. That's really going to attract the youth. And I just thought, my oh, first, no. belt, this person like just admit they don't believe because if the first thing they see is a bunch of, he said "Oh, white men. Yeah. Old oh, white men doing it is that if that's the first thing he sees is like age and gender and stuff like that. And not the fact that our Lord himself is walk is going, is being processed through the streets of New York city. Then, they, then you don't believe, but this is the, the way forward. Um, it is things like the crusade for Eucharist reparation for, for really, uh, Increasing intensifying our devotion to the blessed sacrament. Uh, and, and so I, I think these are all things that are and that was another thing I thought was very good was when I saw that procession. I mean, there's another uh uh perfect example of the, the type of things that we need to do in response. So yes, okay,
1: anything else? That that's it, that's it. Okay, okay. I think forward. we've uh
0: <laughs> covered it about as much as we want to at this point. So I appreciate everybody who joined us though on both the one peter five side and the crisis side um maybe we'll do this again sometime it's kind of cool to be able to kind of talk from because we we share you know unite the ca- clans type of people here uh, we know there's some differences of opinion between people in the two audiences but we're all i think in it for jesus christ and for the glory of his you know catholic church so uh so hopefully maybe we'll do this again sometime
1: okay Absolutely.
0: thank you yeah. okay great until next time everybody god love you